alone, here on a stone. I just don't know where I can go. But getting low, winter is a coming back. And colder than the last. Pity for me, cold it can be. When breezes blow with ice and snow, no wonder then I think I'm in a game. This is Sparky on Ice, the coldest podcast on the internet. Today is December 17th, and I have been on ice for 74 days. Welcome back. Sorry about not putting out a show last week. I was feeling a bit down and just didn't have it in me to make a show. This is one of the most beautiful and amazing places I have ever been to, but it is also one of the loneliest places I've ever been to. It is very easy to get lost in your own loneliness here, and that can create a spiral that leads right into a depression if you're not careful. I think the last couple of weeks were very close to that point for me. Don't get me wrong, people here are great, Like um, I, I like everyone, but it's just not the same. I'm one of those folks that has trouble making introductions and talking to people I don't really know. I guess I never really learned how to make small talk, or maybe I've forgotten over the years, but it's kind of hard for me to do. Uh, I've been told that everybody likes me, which is fine, but I still spend most of my time here alone. I tend to eat alone. I spend a good day of my time in my room or out walking alone. I mean, even when I'm doing things in groups, I tend to be the facilitator and not part of the actual groups. um, Take trivia, for instance. I'm commonly the one doing the trivia, not on a team. And even when I'm not doing trivia, I don't have a team to join. Then in karaoke or at a dance party, I spend the entire night in the booth doing the music work, which I love doing, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't exactly um, get people to try and get to know you. So I think all that loneliness finally wore me down last week, but it did make me take a good look at how I was doing things here. And I realized that I need to be more active in the community as a participant. So I volunteered to be an umpire at the softball game and help register runners at the 10K next week. I'm not very athletic since my knee injuries, so I do what I can. I'm also going to try to eat alone less and less in my room and try to make conversation when I can. Still not good at it. I don't know if I'll ever be, but I'll certainly make a shot. And uh, I guess we'll see how that goes. But let's talk about less depressing things. We had a rather eventful couple weeks on station. One of the things we do every year is an MCI or mass casualty incident. Uh, So we have a medical clinic that is staffed well enough for everyday things like illnesses and minor accidents. We have two doctors, a few nurses, and some admin staff. It also has a trauma bay, a treatment ward, even x-ray and ultrasound. It's basically an urgent care center. But there is always a possibility of a major accident that could easily overwhelm the regular hospitals. Things like plane crash or building fire. Even a van full of people crashing could be more than they could deal with. So they created the MCI teams. MCI consists of five teams. Comms, techs, scribes, stretchers, and ox. Comms is obviously communications and logistics. They make sure everyone is in the right place and they are the only people allowed on the radio. Tech is the x-ray and lab folks. They do all the blood work and operate both the regular and portable x-ray machines. Scribes keep track of all the information on patients. They are also the communication point between the ox team and the comms team. Stretchers are extra hands for moving patients or runners to go get things. The ox team is the assessment and treatment team. I am on this team. 
We are generally called mini-doctors since we do most of the initial assessments, determine if someone needs certain types of intervention like air, intubations, um, you know, wound dressings and things like that. We do the ABCs and figure out what's wrong with the patient so the doctor doesn't have to spend a lot of time on that when they're working on other things. Sometimes we can suggest meds with doctor approval, of course, and we are really like combat medics. We, you know, figure out what's wrong and make sure things get taken care of. I really enjoy being on the Ox team. This is my third season on team, and I have learned so much about the emergency medical field. When I was younger, I had dreams of being a flight nurse for the local rescue helicopter, but things happen and dreams change, so I move on. In the previous seasons, I had been either in the red room, where the most critical patients are, or yellow, which is second-tier patients that need attention but were not as critical. This year, I got triage. That was a challenge. My job was to assess the incoming patients and send them to their proper place in the clinic. Red, yellow, green, and black. Red and yellow, I've already talked about earlier. Green was the walking wounded with no obvious major issues. And black was for dead or soon to be dead. And black is the most difficult to triage because sometimes they are still alive. But treating them would take so many resources that other patients might die in the meantime. It is really a fine line that we have to walk on calling that. Luckily, I didn't have any black patients in the MCI this year. I need to clarify that the MCI drill is all acting. They use Halloween makeup and prosthetics to make convincing injuries. They also coach the volunteers how to act to make them seem more real. And they do a very good job at this. So the scenario this year was a generator power plant had arced and exploded, causing a fire. We knew to expect uh, burns and smoke inhalations. And we did get some of that, but not as much as we expected. It was less fire than we thought, and most were blast injuries. A lot of broken bones, head injuries, and internal injuries. I did have a couple people come in very disoriented, which I figured were obvious concussions from blast energy, so they went to red. A broken femur, a chest wound, and a few walking wounded. Uh, The doc said I did really well in getting all but one right. She had a big gash on her forehead, so I thought yellow, but she was actually green because she she was walking, she was breathing, and she wasn't disoriented, so green she was. I corrected it once he questioned me about the basic questions for triage. I let the visual get in the way of the clinical that time. After triage, I went to yellow to help out. I noticed that one of the ox team members was a patient, and usually we like to work in pairs, so I went over and asked if I could help out. We started working with the patient. She was responsive, but very disoriented. She is one of the ones I figured for concussion, but she didn't have a single injury and her vitals were stable. We could not figure out what the problem was. She was acting like she'd been drugged or really drunk, but her labs were clean. Then the doc came by and said she had been in Fallujah during the war not too long ago. While that seemed like useless info, a few minutes later I thought about it and asked her if she'd ever been in a situation like this. And she said, and she said, oh, like the war. And that's when I figured out we were dealing with PTSD from some attack in combat. We realized that not all injuries were physical, but we hadn't been trained on how to handle that, so we just kept her calm and reassured her that she was safe in Antarctica. Turns out, that was the only thing we could do without the assistance of a qualified therapist. So, we did the right thing. All in all, it was a good MCI drill, and I certainly learned a lot. Other things happening around station are the uh, the melting. The Great Melt and the rivers of Antarctica have finally completely shown up. Every year, the mass of snow that builds up over the winter melts because of the sun, and we ended up with large well, not large rivers, but all of our culverts and our ditches fill up with water and uh, we get mud all over the place. It, it just becomes a mud pit for a couple of weeks. It's very annoying. You track mud everywhere. 
lots of vacuuming. So, but other than that, it's uh, pretty good here so far. We were supposed to have a plane land uh, this morning, but uh, it boomeranged because of weather here on station, which was weird when we saw that because the weather was beautiful on station. And it turns out they were looking at the forecast for when they were landing, and about the time they would have landed, it was super windy. So apparently they got that right. Um, so they'll probably try again tomorrow and see what happens. And then we'll go into level yellow, which really stinks this close to the Christmas holiday because Christmas is in one week and we don't want to be in yellow for our holidays because that's no fun at all. Hopefully the plane gets here early enough tomorrow morning to where it won't affect our days off. Well, I think that's enough about me this week. On to history. Last time we had left Mawson just before he set out on his far eastern trek. Mawson set out with his two companions, Xavier Mertz and Belgrave Ninnis, with a sledge pulled by a team of dogs on November, 12th, 19, November 10th, 1912. They made reasonable progress for the conditions, being at times held down for up to three days by blizzards. On December 14th, while crossing an ice field, Mertz in front of the skis signaled the snow-covered crevasse, one of the many they encountered to be crossed. Such crevasses are hazardous, as a snow bridge can be strong or fragile. They are crossed at right angles, so as little time as possible spent trusting the unknown strength. Mertz crossed first, then Mawson, who also made it safely, but then Mertz called out as the third man, Nennis, his sledge, and all the dogs disappeared from sight. They had broken through the snow bridge and fallen into the crevasse below. Mawson and Mertz rushed to the edge of the crevasse and stared down into the deep, gaping hole. About 150 feet below the ridge was a dog, whining, its back seemingly broken. Beneath this was only a dark, open void of the crevasse. Mertz and Mawson called into the depths for over three hours. They gathered all the rope, but they still could not even reach as far as the dog. As well as the loss of their companion, Nennis, they lost the sled and six fittest dogs, the most of the indispensable supplies, the tent, and most of the food and spare clothing. The remaining sled had only ten days of rations for the two men and nothing for the six dogs. They were 315 miles from the main base at Camp Denison. In a few terrible moments, with no forewarning or chance afterwards of being able to do anything about the situation, they had lost a man, and their circumstances had changed irrevocably for the worse. They did, however, have a spare tent cover, but no inner tent or poles, and they had the cooker with some fuel. They had laid no deep holes on the outward journey, so they had expected to take an easier route back to Cape Denison. Some days earlier, they had discarded a sledge in order to travel lighter. They now made their way back to this and reassessed their equipment, disposing of everything not essential. The tent was improvised by draping the spare tent cover over the skis and sledge struts. The dogs were fed worn-out finisco, mitts, and rawhide strips. The day after Nintz was lost, December 15th, the weakest dog was killed to feed the others and the men. This pattern was continued over the next 10 days until the final dog collapsed. Stringy and though tough the meat was, every scrap was eaten, including the paws, stewed to make more edible. Ten days later, on Christmas Day, they were still 160 miles from the base. They traveled very slowly, managing to struggle only a few miles per day. Their diet was one of dog meat. They were saving the meager sledging rations as long as possible. They managed very slow progress, managing about six miles a day. On December 30th, however, they managed 15. The day after, Mertz asked to come off the dog meat diet and eat some of their remaining sledging rations. Within another day, the, by the 1st of January 1913, Mertz developed stomach pains, and by the second, his strength was nearly gone. They rested on the 5th, and the next day they tried to continue. Though Mertz was deteriorating, he agreed to be hauled on the sledge by Mawson, and even had to be helped in and out of his sleeping bag. On January 7th, 100 miles southeast of the main base, Mertz became delirious and died. Left alone, Mawson wrote, 
For hours I lay in the bag, rolling over in my mind all that lay behind and the chance of the future. I seemed to stand alone on the wide shores of the world. My physical condition was such that I felt I might collapse at any moment. Several of my toes commenced to blacken and fester near the tips. The nails worked loose. There appealed to be little hope. It was easy to sleep on in the bag, and the weather was cruel outside. Monson continued to walk to the base. On January 17th, he fell down a crevasse and was only saved by his manhole harness attached to the loaded sledge, which held him suspended. He labored upward to free himself, only reached the lip and fall back in. Eventually, he managed to struggle back to the surface and escape from the crevasse, being completely exhausted in the process. He was now around two hours merely to set up camp at the end of the day. On January 29th, almost completely out of supplies, he spotted a snow cairn built by a search party a few hours previously. There was food at the cairn, so he ate, and he read a note telling that the Aurora was waiting at Aladdin's cave only 23 miles away. Still took him three days later on the 1st of February until he could reach Aladdin's cave. The weather turned around once again and remained there for a further week before he could set off for Cape Denison. As he reached Cape Denison, he saw a departing speck on the horizon. The Aurora leaving Antarctica for the season. Six men, however, had remained behind to continue to search for Moss and Mertz and Dennis. He was greeted as though saved from the dead, which was not far from the truth. They tried to recall the Aurora by radio, but ice conditions prevented her from returning, and the seven-minute Cape Denison resigned themselves to another winter of blizzards and confinement. They were well stocked with supplies, however, and even made a sledge journey the following spring on December 12th. The Aurora returned, and by December 24th, 1913, their two-year expedition was over, and on February 5th, 1914, the Aurora set sail for Australia, arriving on February 26th. On returning home, Mawson wrote, The welcome home, the voices of innumerable strangers, the hand grips of many friends, it chokes me, it cannot be uttered. It was later diagnosed that Mertz and Mawson had been suffering the effects of vitamin A poisoning after eating husky dog livers. The Australasian Antarctic Expedition is today regarded as one of the greatest polar scientific expeditions of all time, because the detailed observations of magnetism, geology, biology, and meteorology were made. And that is Mawson's trip, a rather sad one. Um, hopefully next week we get a, a better story, because we're starting to get better and better at uh, making it through the Antarctic. Anyway, I have no more questions from anybody, but you can always send me questions at uh, podcast at sparkyonice.xyz, or reach me on Twitter or Facebook. And until the next show, I'll talk to you later and stay warm.